Turn with me to Matthew 14. And we are finally reached a new chapter. Uh, so let's read the first 13 verses. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they were regarding John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Now having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, and when the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. This text is one of the most fascinating, while tragic and yet triumphant texts in all the Word of God. It tells the story of the murder of John the Baptist. Uh, but there's far more to this story than just that. Uh, as a story by itself, it has more intrigue than the, the strangest soap opera imaginable. Uh, it contains infidelity, divorce, remarriage, incest, uh, political intrigue, jealousy, spite, revenge, uh, lewdness, lust, cold-heartedness, cruelty, brutality, violence, and ungodly remorse. Uh, it's an incredible story, true in every word. But beyond just the events and the plot and the characters, there's an amazing picture of how a man, through fear, forfeited the kingdom of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, and Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. Uh, and we'll certainly see how true that is in this account. Now, as we come to the 14th chapter, the Messiah has been rejected, but along with his disciples, he continues to proclaim the kingdom. Uh, one Bible teacher called Matthew 14, chapters 14 to 23, the ministry of the rejected king. Uh, Jesus was, has arrived. He's presented himself as the long-awaited promised Messiah, the king, and offered his kingdom. However, he has been rejected by his people. But there are some among the people who will believe, and so Jesus and the twelve disciples are moving among those people to present the kingdom and its truth. And as we come to chapter 14, we have another one of the eight incidents in his life and ministry that show us how people responded to the preaching of the kingdom. And you'll remember that we said that the parables in chapter 13 describe the fact that some will believe and some will reject, and that's going to be the way it is in this age. So now we have illustrations of that. 
Two of the eight incidents show us people who believe. Six of the eight show us people who do not believe, paralleling the soils parable at the beginning of chapter 13. Uh, in 1353 to 58, we saw the city of Nazareth, uh, which was the first illustration of an unbelieving, rejecting people. And now we see the story of Herod the Tetrarch, who is also an illustration of stony ground, hard soil, uh, unbelief, resistance, and rejection. And so this is a select incident chosen by the Holy Spirit so that we can see that in this age, as well as in the time of our Lord, there were many who wholeheartedly reject the message of the kingdom. Now, as we study Matthew 14, keep in mind that Luke 9 and Mark 6 also contain parallel passages that provide us additional information that will fill in more details of the story. And so we're going to be looking at them also periodically as we study this story. The last passage dealt with a town that rejected Christ. This one deals with a single man who rejects Christ. Uh, the last passage dealt with a common people who opposed the king. Here we see a king who opposes the true king. Uh, the last passage revealed the treatment of the Messiah. This one reveals the treatment of the Messiah's forerunner. Uh, the last passage showed resistance and rejection based primarily on jealousy. This one shows rejection and resistance based primarily on fear. Uh, but ultimately, both of them reveal selfish pride. And that is usually what damns the soul, an unwillingness to give up what a person is to embrace Jesus Christ. Now, in the story, we are first told about Herod's reaction to Jesus' ministry. But then the reason for that reaction is given in flashback. Uh, so let's begin first with verses 1 and 2, with Herod's reaction to Jesus' ministry. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Jesus has been preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's trained, sent out the twelve disciples, all kinds of miracles and signs have taken place healings, casting out of demons, raising the dead. And the word finally reaches Herod the Tetrarch, and we see his reaction. And verse 1 begins by saying, at that time. Uh, now that is not referring to a specific time, but rather to a period of time, a season of time. Uh, that's the meaning of the Greek word that is used here. Matthew is saying during that general time when Jesus was preaching and teaching, and the disciples were going out doing the same thing, and he was being rejected, and hostility against him was beginning to grow, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. So we meet the main character of this incident, the one who is the rejecter in this passage, uh, the one who is the stony ground. Now it says that Herod is called the Tetrarch. Uh, now technically, that term referred literally referred to a ruler of a fourth part. Uh, but over time, it came to be a term used of any subordinate ruler in a section of a country. Uh, there were many subordinate rulers in Israel at that time. He was one of them. Uh, by the way, in verse 9, he's called the king. Uh, that's a very generous use of the term by Matthew. 
he was not a king like his father, Herod the Great, uh, had been, but he did seek to be a king. On one occasion, he went to Rome to ask Caligula to make him a king, uh, primarily because his wife wanted to be called queen. And uh, that wish was not granted to him. So he wasn't really a king. He was a relatively minor potentate uh, in one area of the country who had little power and influence outside of his jurisdiction. Now, all of you recognize the name Herod. If you go back to Luke 2.1, when Christ was born, you know that there was a king then by the name of Herod. That was Herod the Great, uh, this guy's father. Uh, and Herod the Great was an Idumean. Uh, that is, he was a descendant of Esau. Uh, he was an Arab, if you will. And to compound matters, he married a Samaritan woman. So he was especially despised by the Jews. His cold-blooded atrocities, such as having all the members of the Sanhedrin put to death for daring to challenge his authority, uh, his having at least one of his wives and two of his sons executed, and his slaying of all the male children, uh, two years old and under, in an unsuccessful attempt to destroy the Messiah, that made him even more hated and despised. And yet, he was their king, appointed by Rome to rule over the whole area. However, Herod the Great was long since dead at the time that we arrive at this passage. Uh, this... This is one of his sons, a man who was known as Herod Antipas. Uh, when Herod the Great died, his dominion, which included all of Israel, uh, was divided among three of his sons. Uh, it's hard to keep track of his sons because he had them by several different women. Uh, so some of them were half-brothers. Uh, some of them even had the same name, as we'll see, having, but had different mothers. Uh, but the same father. Uh, but he had three sons, Archelaus, uh, Philip, and Herod Antipas, who were appointed to rule over his dominion. Archelaus was assigned the area of Judea and Samaria. Uh, Philip was given Trachonitis and Iturea, which is located on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in what is today modern-day Jordan. Uh, he is referred to in Luke 3.1 as Philip the Tetrarch. Uh, Herod Antipas got Galilee and the region known as Perea, uh, which is east of the Jordan River, but south of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, so this man had become a petty potentate of sorts, a small-time king, a, a subordinate ruler of Rome, uh, there to leave some kind of imprint of power and control in the society of Jews. Now, there are two other Herods who appear later in the New Testament, and you need to understand that uh, they, they all come from the same family line. Uh, the next Herod we're going to meet is a man uh, that you'll meet is a man named Herod Agrippa I. Uh, you want to know about him? Just read Acts 12. Uh, he declared one day National Herod Day, and... Um, uh, celebrated his power, glorified himself and not God. So God struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Um, and then following him, there was Herod Agrippa II. Uh, this one was found in Acts 26, where the Apostle Paul preached to him. 
So basically you have those four Herods in the New Testament. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, and Herod Agrippa II. Uh, Herod the Great, as I said, had been long since dead. And at this time, Herod Antipas is in his 32nd year of rule. Uh, he is the one who ruled over Galilee during the ministry of Jesus. Uh, he's the Herod who is most familiar to the time and place in the text of Scripture. Uh, he lived in Tiberias, which is a city on the southwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's a, still a thriving city. In fact, it's the largest city on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Herod had built a palace there. Uh, his father had also, Herod the Great, had built a massive fortress. So we talked about this previously in our studies in Matthew. But he built this massive fortress at a place called Machaerus, uh, or Machaerus, uh, which is located in Perea on the east side of the Dead Sea. And that was his summer home because it had natural sp mineral springs and it was an impenetrable location up on top of a mountain with incredible view from there. So he spent much of his time at Machaerus uh, and the rest of his time in Tiberias on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now what is interesting is that at no time in all of his ministry that is described for us in the Gospels did Jesus ever go to Tiberias. Uh, if Jesus went there, he probably did it during the time before he began his ministry, uh, when he, during the time he was a carpenter in Nazareth. Uh, it's less than 20 miles from Nazareth to Tiberias. Uh, it's only 10 miles from Capernaum to Tiberias. And yet there is no indication in Scripture that Jesus ever went there during his entire ministry. It's almost as if there was an obvious effort on his part to avoid a confrontation with Herod. Uh, this man was cut from the same cloth as his father. And Jesus wasn't going to put himself in a jeopardizing position until it was the appointed time for his death. Uh, so there's no indication that he ministered in Tiberias where Herod lived and ruled. And therefore, the man is apparently not particularly aware of the ministry of Jesus at first. But by the time that it says in verse 1 that he heard of the fame of Jesus, it's been about one and a half to two years, two and a half years, one and a half, two and a half years since Jesus' baptism. Uh, it may have been because the Lord never went there, or it may have been because he was in Machaerus most of the time. Uh, it, it may also have been that because he lived in his ivory tower, uh, and the Jewish people weren't about to make him privy to what was going on, uh, it may have been that he was so consumed with his luxurious living and his decadence and all the rest of it that he never bothered with such petty matters. Uh, but finally he heard about the fame of Jesus. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are out ministering the word. It's the, new, the word is rapidly spreading, and hostility is growing, and the conjunction of all these things brings this to his attention. Now, his reaction is very unexpected. Verse 2, he says, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Because of his own haunting guilt for having executed John the Baptist when he knew he shouldn't do it, uh, he's now afraid that John has returned from the dead to seek revenge. Now, if you compare the other accounts, 
you learn that this notion did not originate with Herod. Uh, Luke 9, verses 7 and 8 tell us, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Uh, so he got the same kind of report that, if you remember, the disciples gave uh, to Jesus when he asked them who he was in Matthew 16, 14. Uh, they said, they responded, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Herod hears all of these rumors about who Jesus is. And according to Luke's account, he decides he wants to meet Jesus. He says, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. And as time went by and he thought it through, he sees the similarity between Jesus and John and assumes it's John raised from the dead. Although he was certainly afraid, there was that same morbid curiosity that wanted to see John, Jesus to verify whether or not his fear was legitimate. And so he settles on the fact that it's John the Baptist. And he decides, and I thought this is very interesting, he decides that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. That's a very important indication because it tells us that John may have done some miraculous works. Uh, remember in Luke 1.17, when the birth of John is foretold, it said he will go forth before him, talking about the Messiah, he'll go before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. The spirit and power of Elijah was that of miraculous power. Uh, Elijah was one of those men in the God's Old Testament economy who was given the power to accomplish miracles. So I think it's a convincing argument that John the Baptist may well have been able to do some of those same kinds of miracles. Uh, we aren't told of any in Scripture, uh, but it's certainly possible. And so when Herod hears that Jesus has this miraculous kind of power, he is assured in his mind by his guilty conscience that John is back from the dead and his curiosity demands that he find out for sure. Now let's look at the reason why Herod had this reaction. And now comes the flashback. Verses 3 to 11. I'm going to start with verses 3 and 4. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. In order for us to understand everything about this story, I want to introduce you to the characters. First, there's John the Baptist. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's a great, holy, righteous man of God. Jesus said of John, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest man who had ever lived, the greatest prophet who had ever prophesied. He was a marvelous, incredible man, the forerunner of the Messiah, a cousin of Jesus, uh, th through the familial relationship of Mary and Elizabeth. Uh, this man's job in the world was to announce and introduce the Christ. 
Luke 1 says he would be great in the sight of the Lord. He would drink neither wine nor strong drink. He would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He would turn many hearts of the people to the Lord their God. And he did that. And when he came, his message was very clear. Repent. And what does repentance presuppose? Sin. Uh, he was a confronter. Uh, he called people to confess their sin. Uh, Matthew 3, 6 says the people were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So he confronted sin and he called with a strong message for holiness to prepare a people for the arrival of the Messiah. He was very popular. The whole country was going out to see him. Multitudes responded to his message. Now, in contrast to this man of God, we also meet Herod. We've already talked about his biographical data. Let's look a little bit at his character. He was evil. He was debauched. He was shameless. He was, he was henpecked, uh, pushed to, around by an overbearing woman. And he was given all kinds to all kinds of sinful excesses. He was troubled to be sure in his conscience, but refused to obey. And no doubt John the Baptist really disturbed him. Because here was a man with tremendous popularity. Uh, a man to whom the multitudes of people were moving. And Josephus, the historian of that time, tells us that Herod Antipas was really nervous about John. Uh, he writes, quote, Now when many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause, end quote. Uh, so verse 3 tells us Herod had John arrested and put him in prison. And behind that is his wife Herodias, who's pushing the issue. Uh, Machaerus was a huge place, fortified by Herod the Great, incorporated both a summer palace as well as a fortress. It was on a mountain higher than the city of Jerusalem, so you could see for miles around. Uh, archaeologists have dug that area up, found there's a great dungeon there, uh, and places on the walls where chains were attached in order to chain a prisoner to the wall. And they believe that is the place where John the Baptist was imprisoned. And he was incarcerated there for about a year until his execution. In verse 3, we also meet Herodias here. Herodias, who is introduced, how, notice how Scripture introduces her. What does it say? the wife of his brother Philip. Herodias is one of the most wicked and perverse women in the Bible. If you're making a list of all the bad girls of the Bible, she would definitely be on the list, probably right behind Jezebel. Uh, she, she's really wretched, as you will see. Uh, the text, but the thing I want to point out here is, did you notice the text does not designate her as Herod's wife? However, she was married to him. Uh, the Bible says that she was his brother Philip's wife. So the Holy Spirit, who inspired this text, refuses to recognize her marriage to Herod or call her his wife. Why? Because verse 4 tells us that John said what the Holy Spirit felt. It is not lawful for you to have her. So God didn't recognize their marriage. Now, the facts of that situation are mind-boggling, so hang on to your seat. This is raunchy stuff. Herod Antipas was married to the daughter of King 
Aretas. He was the king over an area south of Herod's jurisdiction, uh, southeast of the Dead Sea, called Nabataean Arabia. Uh, that's where Paul went during those three years after his conversion when God was preparing his heart for ministry. King Aretas had a daughter named Phasael, and Herod married her. She was his wife. Uh, Herod also had another brother named Herod. It's not Herod the Tetrarch, who's also Herod's half-brother. This was another half-brother who was also named Herod, I mean Philip. Uh, they all had different mothers, but the same father, Herod the Great. Well, Herod Antipas went to Rome to visit his brother Philip, uh, because Philip lived in Rome. Uh, he was a private citizen. He had not been given any region to rule. Uh, some historians believe because of some treachery on the part of his mother, he wasn't given rulership over a region. So he lived as a private citizen in Rome, and he had a wife named Herodias. So Herod arrives in Rome, and while he's there, he seduced Herodias, and apparently she responded positively to the seduction. So he says to her, why don't you divorce Philip and come be my wife, and I'll divorce Phasael, uh, the daughter of Aretas. And when we get rid of our present spouses, we'll get married. And that's exactly what happened. Well, now it gets somewhat complicated at this point. You see, Herodias, Herodias was the daughter of another brother of Herod. So Herod Antipas is one son of Herod the Great. Philip is another son of Herod the Great. And there was another son of Herod the Great who was the father of Herodias. So both Philip and Herodias Antipas were married to their niece, Herodias. There's so much in this that confuse you, so just hang on to that one little detail. So Philip the Tetrarch, private citizen Philip, and Herod Antipas are all sons of Herod the Great. Herod, Herodias was the daughter of another son of Herod the Great, so she's married to two of her uncles who were brothers. Now, according to Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20.21, for a man to be married to his brother's wife was incest. By the way, Herodias had another brother. His name is, you know his him, that's, Her, that's Herod Agrippa. The first, the one who was eaten by worms in Acts 12. That's, Hero that's one of Herodias' brothers. That's just a little extra detail for you so you know how messed up the Herod family was. Um, so there's all kinds of incest, and that's the simple version of the story. So they decide to divorce their spouses and get married. And to top it off, King Eretus was really upset. Uh, after all, it was his daughter, Phasael, who... Uh, Herod dumped in order to marry Herodias. Uh, Aretas was so upset, he came in and destroyed uh, Herod's entire army, and Herod himself would have been killed, except the Romans saved him. Uh, the Jews could see the evil of the whole situation. They really felt that what happened when Aretas came in and wiped out Herod's army was God's punishment for this incestuous relationship in which he was engaged. Uh, now, before we delve into this incident with John the Baptist, uh, let me tell you what happens a couple of years later after both John and Jesus are gone from the scene. 
Uh, I want you to understand just how evil Herodias and the rest of the Herod family really are. So Herod and Herodias are married, and the Jews are really upset with this. And so Herod had a major political problem on his hands that just won't go away. So he endures years of political turmoil. And then in 34 AD, Philip the Tetrarch, Herod's brother, the one who ruled over Trachonitis and Iturea, died. Well, immediately, Herodias, his wife, wanted that area. And so she wanted to be a, the queen and rule over that territory. But Emperor Tiberius was not a fan of Herod. Uh, so Herod was smarter than to ask him for more land and a bigger title. Uh, but Tiberius died in 37 AD, just three years later. And Caligula became emperor. Uh, it turned out that Caligula and Herod Agrippa were good buddies. So he assigned control of that area to Agrippa, Herodias's brother, and gave him the title of king. Well, Herodias was so upset, she said to Herod Antipas, you go to Rome, and even though you didn't get that territory, you insist that he appoints you to be a king because I want to be a queen. Herod hemmed and hauled around, tried to talk Herodias out of this idea for a while. But finally, with his tail between his legs, he headed off to Rome, uh, taking Herodias along with him. However, Herodias' brother, Herod Agrippa, didn't like his uncle Herod Antipas at all. And so Agrippa sent a faster messenger to Caligula and told Caligula that Herod Antipas was planning a rebellion and presented evidence that he was stockpiling far more weapons than his army would need. Well, it was all a ruse. Uh, so when Herod Antipas went in to ask to be made king, Caligula believed he had a revolution and rebellion on his mind. And so he stripped Herod Antipas of his throne and sent him in exile to Gaul which is modern-day France, until his death. Uh, and the worst of it for Herod was that Caligula exiled Herodias with him. So you talk about getting your comeuppance. Um, it was a bitter outcome for Herod when he seduced Herodias. Um, life was never the same. And, uh, but that, that is all future at the point in time that we find ourselves in Matthew 14. But I thought you would enjoy. Yeah, yeah. I thought you would enjoy some of the history, how evil this family, this woman was. That's the basic. Yes, that's the basic cast of characters. Uh, there's one more we'll meet in a little bit. But all of this wretchedness is brought to John's attention, and he comes before Herod. Uh, it may have been that John went to Herod to confront him about his sin, but most likely John, uh, Herod summoned John there because he'd heard about John speaking out against him, and Herod believed that he was, that was making the political storm about him much worse. Uh, the entire Jewish nation was upset with Herod, so he probably wanted to see John and try to order him to stop it. So he calls John in, and probably said something along the lines of, what is this I hear about you stirring up trouble about me and my wife? And look at verse 4 and what it says. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Mark 6.18 states it this way. 
For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So it's clear that John didn't say this once to Herod, but multiple times. Uh, Herod may have summoned him a few times, giving him orders to shut up, but that didn't stop John. Uh, he just kept saying it's not lawful. This is uh, an ungodly, sinful union. Now, that's what you call confronting sin head on. He didn't say, as many pastors say today when speaking to our immoral culture, oh, great king, I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity to minister to you, so I don't want to say too much about your behavior that I consider to be immoral because I hope I'll have an opportunity at some point to encourage you to think about your lifestyle and consider changing your ways. That's the modern day version of how you confront Herod. No, he, he just bluntly said what was true. Uh, there's a reason why the angel who predicted his birth to Zechariah said he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. There's just so many parallels here between John the Baptist and Elijah. Uh, they both confronted kings who were immoral reprobates, uh, they, who had wives who were immoral reprobates, and they bluntly confronted the kings about their sin. Uh, they, that was John the Baptist. He just said it plainly and directly. It didn't make Herod happy. It made Herodias livid. Um, and they were both angry, and as a result, it says, Herod had John arrested and put him in prison. Uh, you know, John's boldness is a mark of greatness. Uh, he was neither a compromiser nor a diplomat. His only fear was of the Lord. Um, this is the mark of the man of God, fearlessly confronting the sins of men, regardless of their position or status or level of authority or the possible consequences of doing such. Uh, when there's sin to be confronted, you confront it. They, they hold your life in their hands, but that's okay if you're one of God's servants. Uh, Christ confronted it. Uh, Stephen confronted it. Paul confronted it. Peter confronted it. John the Baptist confronted it. It's the only right thing to do. Uh, Bible scholar A.T. Robertson said, It cost him his head, but it's better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. So, uh, you know, it's dangerous uh, to rebuke a Middle Eastern despot. Uh, you can imagine what would happen to you today if you did it to some Middle Eastern uh, president. It, it's still the same culture. John signed his death warrant, but he was in the hands of God. Our culture won't put you to death for speaking up against certain sins, but it will cancel you, marginalize you, publicly shame and harass you so that, uh, you know, maybe it might be that one of their sympathizers is emboldened to assault you or threaten you or make your life difficult. Um, they'll try to make you lose your job or be thrown out of your school or university or even turn your neighbors against you by creating such a disturbance in your neighborhood that your neighbors will refuse to have anything to do with you for fear the same thing will happen to them. Uh, but God will honor you in his time. It may not be until you're in heaven, but it's still far better to speak the truth than to shamefully slink away and refuse to proclaim God's truth. I'm, I'm not saying that it's okay to be rude or obnoxious about it. Uh, but when you're asked what you believe, don't shy away from speaking the truth. Back when I was working in law enforcement, I was sometimes asked by coworkers, uh, do you believe homosexuality is wrong? 
And my answer was, it doesn't matter what I believe about it. It matters what God believes about it, what he says about it. And in his word, the Bible, he says it's a sin. And since God says it's sinful, then I agree with him. But there's forgiveness for that sin through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I once had a female coworker ask me that question, and I gave her that answer. And uh, then she told me that her sister was a lesbian. And my reply was, well, I sh I'm sure she's a nice lady, but that doesn't change my answer. The issue is never what you or I think. It's what God says about a matter that determines whether it's sinful or not. Uh, fortunately for me, I had built up a long-standing personal friendship with that coworker, and she didn't turn against me because of my response. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, we're, we're still friends to this day, uh, but it doesn't mean that the same thing won't happen to some other Christian. Um, they, things could have gone a different direction and created she could have, you know, she could have created major problems for me. Uh, but God was gracious and kept me from that. But he doesn't always do that with every believer. Uh, and John the Baptist is an example of speaking the truth boldly and suffering as a result. Uh, verse 5 tells us, And although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they were regarding John as a prophet. Uh, this guy Herod lives by fear. He fears his wife, and he fears that if he executes John, the Jews are going to rise up and depose him as their ruler. Uh, so he's afraid of the people too. He's paralyzed. He's, he's afraid of everyone. So he just keeps John in prison trying to buy time. But then something very interesting happens. He's got John the Baptist in prison because he's fascinated with him. He's afraid of him. But because he's incarcerated, he can't do him any harm. His fear turns to fascination. He becomes enamored with the guy. He was dynamic. Remember, Jesus said there was never a man in history of the world like John. He, he had to have been an incredible guy to listen to. And so Herod was so drawn to him, he began to regularly call John in for conversations. How do I know that? Because listen to what it says in Mark 6.20. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he was keeping him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Uh, he enjoyed listening to John, even though he went away puzzled and baffled uh, by what John had to say. So his fear turns to fascination, although I'm sure that his fear would have immediately returned if John had escaped. Um, <laughs> but while Herod was fascinated by John, Herodias was seething. She's a woman of immorality, of infidelity, of vice. She's vindictive, and she nursed her rage to a boiling point. She wanted revenge. She wanted John condemned to death. And so she became so incensed with anger and fury that she would, uh, that she would use and stain her own child with guilt beyond description. That introduces us to the last character, verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. By, by the way, only did you know that only pagans held birthday celebrations? The Jews never did. Uh, the Jews used to look on the pagan birthday celebrations as a terrible act of shame, and they had a good reason for doing it that way. In fact, there was a Latin phrase which was Herodes Dies, uh, which means Herod's birthday. 
and it came to be a term for a birthday party, which was nothing more than a stag party for the men, no self-respecting woman ever attended, at which there was lots of gluttony and excessive drinking, and then when everyone was drunk, women of low moral character came in and performed erotic dancing and participated in sexual orgies. Uh, that was the pattern of Herod's birthday. Um, so when Herod's birthday came, verse 6, <coughs> the daughter of Herodias, Josephus tells us her name was Salome. Uh, some people say Salome, it should be Salome. Um, uh, danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, Herodias planned all of this. She wants John dead. And she knows that by the time you get to the end of this party, he's going to be drunk. He's gluttonous, stuffed to his gills. He's going to be really vulnerable to his sexual lust. And when it's time for the immoral, shameless women to come into their lewd sex with their lewd sexual dances, she brings in her young, probably 14 to 17 year old daughter named Salome to do this dance to really accomplish her goal. Now we might think about this girl dancing for this man. We might be, you know, in our culture, inclined to think, so what? What could be so seductive about a teenage girl dancing in front of a bunch of guys? Well, don't think Salome is a sweet, innocent girl. Get that thought, wipe that thought out of your mind right now. She would have been sexually mature, but emotionally and intellectually weak because she's still controlled by her mother. She had already learned how to use her sexual desirability to stimulate a man. Nothing in scripture des, uh, describes her dance, but it was probably one of the veil dances that were very popular at that time. Tradition since then uh, states that she performed what was known as the dance of the seven veils, a dance in which the women were covered with seven veils and then slowly removed uh, each veil as she danced seductively until she removed all of them and she was nude except for a very small loincloth about her hips. So Salome wasn't some sweet, innocent child that was taken advantage of by her wicked mother. Uh, she was a willing participant who had learned from her mother how to manipulate men. In fact, just like her mother, she went on to marry Philip the Tetrarch, who was her uncle. So she was in, also involved in an incestuous marriage, just like her mother. And after his death in 34 AD, she married her cousin Aristobulus of Chalcis, uh, thus becoming queen of the region known as Armenia Minor. Uh, so then, that's, that's, that's her. And at the end of verse 6, it says her dance pleased Herod. Uh, that means she, it turned him on sexually in our vernacular. Uh, he lusted after her lewdness. He was a leering, lecherous, vile, drunken sot. Uh, and as a result, we read in verse 7, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. He's really suckered into this. And in his drunken, gluttonous, sexually charged stupor, he lost all sense of judgment and sound reasoning and wanted to be the magnanim magnanimous benefactor and so he makes a stupid promise and then swears an oath to uphold it uh, that she can have anything she wants. And Mark adds in his account that he said, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. That'll tell you just how wasted on booze and enthralled with sexual lust he was. 
And so her mother's plot came to fruition in a moment. Verse 8, Now having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Mark's account says that she went out and asked her mother exactly uh, what, to, what to ask for. She asked her mother what to ask for, and Herodias told her exactly what she wanted. In fact, Mark tells us she wanted it immediately. Uh, and she said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You see, Herodias didn't want to wait until Herod sobered up um, and had a chance to think about it. She wanted it now. And the fool was too proud to break his stupid oath because he wanted to come off as a magnificent, magnanimous benefactor. He wanted everyone there to think his word was pure gold. He, he wanted the people to think he knew what he was doing and hadn't made a foolish statement. And so out of fear of losing his reputation, out of fear of losing the respect you can be sure that he actually never had, uh, because all these kinds of people really do despise each other, um, out of the fear of losing face with the captains and the chiefs and the famous men who were at the party, instead of saying, well, that was a stupid thing for me to say, that's not really what I intended by that promise. Uh, this morally bankrupt, cowardly, wicked fool in fear of his wife and fear of the people there did that which he knew he didn't actually want to do. Verse 9 begins, and although he was grieved, Mark says he was very sorry. Uh, his sorrow had nothing to do, though, with remorse for sin or with genuine repentance. He was trapped by his public oath and he knew it. Uh, but his pride wouldn't let him go back on what he said. He was just like Pilate. Uh, you know, Pilate was trying to hold on until they said to him, well, if you let Jesus live, you're no friend of Caesar's. And so afraid of losing his name and reputation and throne, he killed the Son of God. And Herod acts in the same way. Out of fear of losing his reputation, he orders the killing of the messenger, the forerunner of God. The rest of verse 9 says the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. So verse 10 says, and he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. So suddenly, unexpectedly, privately in the depth of that dungeon, John the Baptist was murdered. Verse 11 says, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. As gruesome and ghoulish as that act was, such things were not uncommon in those days. Uh, Herodias had an ancestor by the name of Alexander Junius. And historians tell us that one time Alexander Junius was holding a big feast and he brought in 800 rebels to make a display and he crucified all 800 of them in the view of all of the revelers at the feast. And then while they were hanging on the cross still alive, he murdered all their wives and children in front of their eyes. Uh, it was a horribly cruel and debauched world. Uh, and we still see that kind of approach to human life in that part of the world. When ISIS took over parts of Syria and Iraq and tried to establish their own caliphate, they beheaded and crucified all the Christians they could find and they threw homosexuals to their death off of tall buildings. Uh, their regard for human life is just as debauched today as it was back then. Uh, one commentator writes, when the dish was brought in with a bleeding head on it, no doubt Salome took it daintily in her hands lest a drop of it should stain her, and she tripped away to her mother as if bearing her some choice dish of food from the king's table. It was not uncommon to bring the head of one who had been slain to the person who ordered it as a sure proof that the command had been obeyed, end quote. 
when the head of Cicero was brought to Fulvia, the wife of Antony, she spat on it, pulled its tongue out, and drove her hairpin through it. Uh, the early church father, Jerome, believed that's what Herodias did to the head of John. Uh, we can't verify that, but we know that the Herod family seemed to want to mimic all of the worst atrocities of Roman nobility, and it wouldn't have been, it wasn't, it wouldn't be in the least out of character for Herodias to have done the same sort of ghastly thing. Certainly, John's head must have been an object of derision and mocking. That's the extent of rejection that comes from pressure brought on by the fear of man. Herod was afraid to lose his throne. Uh, he was afraid of John. He was afraid of his wife. He was afraid of the people around him. And under intimidation of all that, he damned his soul to hell forever. So after a year of imprisonment, John the Baptist is dead. His work is done. He's gone to his heavenly reward. Faithful, uncompromising man. That's the character of a true prophet of God. Faithful to the end without compromise. Look at verse 12. We see a beautiful ending to this ugly scene. And, it, and his disciples, those are John the Baptist's disciples, came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. You can imagine how it was for them to pick up the headless body of the man whom they loved, who was the voice of God to them, greatest man they'd ever known, who made such a profound profession impression in their lives, who preached repentance, under whose preaching they confessed their sins, repented, and been baptized in preparation for the Messiah. And they took his body and they buried it. And then that lovely note at the end of verse 12, they went and reported to Jesus. Uh, and verse 13 tells us, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Mark tells us he took the other disciples with him. Luke tells us the same thing. John, Jesus wants some time away to grieve, to rest, to prepare for more ministry. John was his cousin, his forerunner. He loved him. In his humanity, Jesus grabbed uh, grieved for him. Some commentators have tried to suggest that Jesus left town because he was afraid of Herod. Hardly. It wasn't in the plan to confront Herod. This was not the time to see Herod and be thrown in prison or the Gospels wouldn't be the Gospels. The timetable did not involve Herod. And so Jesus didn't go to Tiberius or Machairus. He didn't confront the man, but it would be an important time to be alone with the twelve to talk about what it's going to cost them to preach the kingdom. Here was the first preacher and he was killed. Jesus is the second. He would be killed. And the majority of the twelve would be martyred for their faith as well. And so this was a very important time to, to be together to talk about the price and cost of following him. It's a time of instruction. But you see the... In verse 13, it didn't last long. When the disciples heard this, when the crowds heard this, they, they followed him on foot from the cities. One final note. Listen carefully. There's a climax to this whole thing. Herod wanted to see Jesus, didn't he? He thought he was John the Baptist. He wanted to resolve this, and he, he kept trying to find him. Jesus never went to see him. But one day, and he, in fact, if you remember, Jesus did send a message to Herod one time. He says... Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow on the third day I'll finish. So, uh, you know, he, he's saying, and you fox, you want to see me? You're not going to be able to kill me like you did John the Baptist until my work is done. And so he moved on with quiet dignity. Well, finally, we find over in Luke 23, the only time that Jesus was ever in the presence of Herod, it's the trial of Jesus. It says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged 
to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem in those days. Pilate didn't know what to do with Jesus. He's standing before him. Pilate can't find a reason to condemn him. He hasn't done anything to be guilty of. And he learns that he's from Galilee, and that's Herod's jurisdiction, so he ships him off to Herod. Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. And it says, verse 8, Then when Herod saw Jesus, he rejoiced greatly, for he wanted to see him for a long time, because he'd been hearing about him, was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Again, there's that strange fascination. It says, verse 9, He questioned him at some length. We don't know what he asked. You might think, here's a, what an opportunity. Jesus could give him all the answers right now. Herod wants to see him. He's thrilled to see him. All it takes is for the Lord to perform a miracle. And the end of it, it says, he answered him nothing. He, he never said a word. And the chief priest and the scribes are there. It says they're violent, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, listen to this, and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a bright robe and sent him back to Pilate. Notice that Herod joined in the mockery of Jesus. He didn't just sit there and watch. He was jeering and mocking Jesus as being just another Jew who thought he was a king. So they dressed Jesus in a kingly robe. They sent him back to Pilate. And verse 12 says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. They used to hate each other. Now they were friends. Why? Because they both shared a common hatred and mockery of the Son of God. They're two very tragic men. As Herod rejected Christ, Christ rejected Herod because he was hard, stony ground. Out of the fear of a woman, fear of losing his reputation, fear of his friends, fear of losing his throne, he, down, he damned his soul forever. Jesus didn't say a word to him because he wouldn't cast his pearls before such a pig. John the Baptist wasn't afraid of losing any of those things, including his life. And in the end, he did lose his head, but he lives forever in the presence of God. And the same thing applies to those people today who we encounter who proudly hold on to their reputation for fear of what others may think, fear of loss of family if they might, who might reject them, or fear of the attitudes and actions of those who may reject them. And when they do, they forfeit Jesus Christ and damn their soul. And one day they'll hear those words that are so fearful. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, Jesus says that we're never to allow the fear of man to prevent us from entering into a genuine saving relationship with Christ. Here's how he put it. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. On the other hand, he said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. We must be willing to give up everything, everything, if we want to truly follow him. And that means we'll not be afraid of losing everyone and everything for him. Herod was afraid, and it doomed him for eternity. Don't be like Herod. And that brings us to the end. Okay? Any questions or comments? Yes? Because um, so. I guess you celebrate birthdays because it's the pagans that did it back then? Is that, is this, is it a There's a lot of the things that we do that were start that do today that originated as pagan holidays. It doesn't mean it was wrong to celebrate someone's birthday. It's how you celebrate their birthday. If you're having a sexual orgy for their birthday, that's, that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. 
I kept thinking the whole time you were giving this lesson of the Ecclesiastes first of faith. There's nothing new under the sun. There's things that happened so yep. many thousands of years ago in the same times of faith. Yep. Same thing back then as today. Except they didn't have the internet. Yeah. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had in your word. It's been very instructive. Very instructive to our hearts. Lord, help us to guard our hearts from the deceitfulness of fearing what others may say or think about us. Lord, we uh, pray now as we go our, into the service, that we praise you and worship you together, and we bring glory to your name, of which you are worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.